0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Well, this next week, um, we'll jump back into our series in John's Gospel, uh, looking at the seven signs of John and reasons that John tells us that we should be believing in Jesus. But like I mentioned, because I listened to my body, my doctor, and my wife this week, I slowed down. And so I asked a friend, his name is Tyler, to come and share God's Word with us this morning. So we will have a bit of an abbreviated gathering this morning so that you are able to get out of here if you feel the need to make sure that you get home in plenty of time. Um, But I do want us to open God's Word together and to uh, right now give him an opportunity to speak to us. And then next week I'll share with you a bit more. Sorry if I feel impersonal um, after having been away. I'd love to just get into God's word and then next week we'll share with you some of the things God's been doing in my own heart over the last week and a half. But again, thanks for praying for me and then why don't you welcome Tyler. Well,
1: good morning, Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. What a joy to be here with you all this morning. You're here. You made it. I'm calling it Hurricane Sunday this morning. Hurricane Sunday. And um, if you could open your Bible, there's John chapter 13. We'll be in John chapter 13 this morning. Uh, before we begin, I want to commend you for being so hospitable. I've been here. I think we rolled in around 845. So many people just came up and greeted us. And I've got my wife and three kids here. They're out hanging out back there somewhere. And everyone was just coming up and saying hi and what's your name and giving us hugs. And man, it's a joy to be with God's church. And that's the body of Christ wherever you go, right? There's like a sense of family, and I just love that. And I don't think I need to tell you, but your pastor, Pastor Trevor, is a gift. Amen? Um, I have gotten to know Trevor kind of off and on over the last six years because I've been in youth ministry, and if you didn't know, Trevor was like, the GOAT, which is, I know that's kind of a weird term, but us younger people know it's the greatest of all time. He was well known for doing youth ministry. So I got to meet him because he would always speak at all these different camps. And one thing about Pastor Trevor is anytime I'd be alone with him or even have like a brief conversation with him, I felt like he'd just look me straight in the eye and speak in that like peaceful, calm voice and just like shepherd me for those few moments. And um, that's actually a rarity in pastoral circles, believe it or not. There's a lot of pastors that are great communicators. They're gifted Bible teachers. But to have someone just like shepherd you and love you in that way, it's a true gift. I'm thankful for him. And uh, I'm sure you are too. This morning, yeah, go ahead and clap for him. uh John chapter 13 is where we're going to be, and I've actually been battling a little bit cough, so I want to apologize in advance if I do cough, but we are going to look at this section of Scripture. This is the last evening Jesus has with the disciples before he goes to the cross. We're going to read and then pray and then dive into it. Does that sound good? Are you with me? Okay, and Ruth back there, right when I showed up, she put the verses on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, they'll be up there on the screen. Uh, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word, and it says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Can everyone say that phrase? He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose up from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? If you would, pray with me. Jesus, we consider you this morning. We welcome you this morning. Lord, you are our guests of honor. And as we open up your word, I pray that your word would come alive to us, that by your spirit you would speak to us, that you would bring application to our lives, Lord. I pray for those that need encouragement, that they'd be encouraged. Those that need comfort would be comforted. Those that need guidance and wisdom would receive guidance and wisdom from you. Lord, I pray simply that you would just extend and um, embolden and magnify our vision of who you are this morning. Lord, we welcome you in Jesus' name, your people said. Amen. A few months ago, I was driving with my family, actually right like over here. We were going on the other side of um, where the safari park is. So that other road, I'm sure you're familiar with it. That other one on the other side, we're going and we're staying at a night at this cute little hotel over there. And I've got some kids. I've got a one-year-old. I've got a three-year-old and I've got a five-year-old. Okay. Presley is our five-year-old girl. Then you've got Knox who's three and Banks just turned one. And Presley and Knox are 18 months apart. And if you have any kids or grandkids that are 18 months apart, it's a bit like craziness all the time. It's like a zoo in our car all the time. But they were arguing back and forth, and I don't know where they picked up this phrase, but this was their argument. I have more power. No, I have more power. I have more power. I don't even know where they got that phrase. Maybe Spidey and Friends, I'm not sure. But they're arguing, and then my son, three years old, says this incredibly theological statement. He goes, God has more power, and you don't have any. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Good job, buddy. But this, uh, this, um, this conversation, it was amusing, but it was also revealing that their argument is a great example of humanity's obsession with power. Like if we're really honest with ourselves, we as human beings, we kind of enjoy power. We like having power because power means control. So we try to extend or gain power through force, through intellect, through finances, through money, whatever it is. We enjoy power because power means control. But regardless of the means, humanity has this obsession with power because power means control. And even this night, the nights where Jesus is with the disciples, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified, the disciples are arguing about the same thing as my kids in the back of my car. They were arguing about who would be the greatest of them all. Excuse me. And that is when Jesus does the unthinkable. In his response to this argument, Jesus does this sign to the disciples of what true power and true greatness looks like. He shows the disciples that he is the servant king. And if you like to take notes this morning, that's the title of our message, The Servant King. This morning, we're going to consider three aspects of the servant king. Number one, we're going to consider his posture of humility from verses one through six. Number two, we are going to consider his promises of humility from verses seven to 17. And then number three, we're going to wrap it up by looking at the power of humility. But first, let's zoom into our text and consider the posture of humility. I want you to pick up with me again here in verse three and four. It says, Jesus, everyone say Jesus. Now, notice this description that John immediately gives us about Jesus. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he has come from God and was going to God. Yeah, that Jesus. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. In this act of cleansing the disciples' feet, Jesus mirrors the ministry of the prophets of old. If you remember in the Old Testament, the prophets would do these demonstrations that would demonstrate a living truth. It was like a living parable. So you got Ezekiel doing kind of some funky stuff, and Jeremiah is doing some interesting stuff, and they're acting out these living truths before them. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's reenacting a scene as a living parable to express a spiritual truth and I know that's actually what you guys have been studying here on Sunday mornings. You've been looking at the seven signs or the seven miracles of Jesus. And although this is a miracle, it has that same feel to it. There's a living truth attached to the action of what Jesus is doing. And so here he is. He does something unthinkable. He takes the form of a lowliest servant. But to really comprehend this posture of humility, what I want us to first consider here is to understand the distance that he went. Like the distance wasn't just from like me being on this little platform to coming down to washing the disciples' feet. No, it was a far greater distance than that. And it seems that the Apostle John reminds us of the distance Jesus went intentionally Prior to this act of humility, prior to acknowledging the humility of Jesus, the author, John, reminds us of the majesty of Jesus. He takes a moment to focus it on who exactly this Jesus is. Did you catch it? It was there in verse 3. Before he began to talk about Jesus watching the disciples' feet, he describes Jesus with this great and grand and majestic view of who Jesus is. He says that it's this Jesus who came from the Father, who came from not just like a little platform. No, he came from the glories of heaven. This is who Jesus is, who came from the Father and who's going to the Father and who has all things or all things have been given to him. Like, is that a small view of Jesus or a big view of Jesus? It's a grand view of Jesus. Like he just elevates our view of Jesus for a second. He gets our mind on the majesty of Jesus just for a moment so that we can actually appreciate the humility of Jesus. Because if we're, at the, if we're out to dinner together and we're all having a big meal and the server comes and you got the busboy that goes and cleans the table, we wouldn't be impressed by that. That's his job. That's his role. That's, that's literally what he gets paid to do. But if the owner comes and does that to our table, man, that's a different form of hospitality, is it not? Well, think for a second of Jesus, the distance that he went. The one who came from the Father, he's going to the Father, he's been given all things. It's that Jesus who is there washing the stinky, nasty feet of the disciples. It's important to note that John's gospel is specifically written to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, God in human flesh. The Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and King. The Gospel of Mark presents Jesus as the servant. The Gospel of Luke focuses in on the humanity of Jesus. But John, John's thing is to focus in on the divinity, on the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact God in human flesh. That's the whole point of the book. The whole point of the book is to focus in onto this point. It's in the Gospel of John that we're introduced to these grand themes, like the idea that Jesus was in the beginning, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then that the Word became and dwelt among us. He became flesh. Like it's John who pinned that at the beginning. He's giving this, uh, this grand view of who Jesus is. It's also the gospel of John that records the seven I am statements where Jesus claims to be the same one who appeared to Moses in Sinai thousands of years before. It's in these majestic I am statements that Jesus is revealed as the bread of life, the light of the world, the shepherd, the door, the way, the truth and the life, the resurrection life and the true vine. It's John who records these things for us. It's John who's giving us insight into who Jesus is. It's in the Gospel of John that the seven signs or great miracles that you guys have been um, learning and looking at, it's John who records those things. It's John. No one else records Jesus turning water into wine. It's John who records the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000, walking in water, healing a man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. John's whole thing is to give us this great grand view of Jesus. John is always pointing us to the majesty of God. And the majesty of God speaks to this greatness, the grandness, how big our God is. This is the thing. We can never over-exaggerate the majesty of Jesus. Like we cannot over-exaggerate. We we can over-exaggerate the grandness of man right? It's like, you're like, they have billions of dollars or zillions of dollars thinking about the world at least. You can can exaggerate that, but you cannot over-exaggerate the majesty, the power, the grandness, the beauty of who Jesus is. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this, quote, "...the confusion of the church is steadily growing worse." I refer to the loss of the concept of the majesty of God from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for at once so low, so ignoble, and to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. According to Tozer, we've lost interest or the culture has lost interest in God because we've lost the majesty of God. We are so enamored by the things of this world and are so disinterested in God because we've reduced them to a genie in the bottle or this like super therapist that's there to meet every one of our needs. But he's so much more than all of these things. He's so great and he's so grand. It's it's Jesus who Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 2 when he says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Notice Paul does the same thing that John does here in John 13. What are both of them doing? In order for us to truly appreciate the humility of Jesus, we first need to consider the majesty, the grandness, the greatness of who Jesus is. Because when we see how great and grand he is, it's then we can appreciate the distance that he went to put that towel around his waist, to wash the disciples' feet. This is our Jesus. This is the Jesus we gather together to worship. He's the one who holds all things together, but the one who willingly puts the towel around himself to wash their feet. You can't over-exaggerate the distance that Jesus went to express humility from going from the throne room of the Father to the dusty floors of an upper room to wash the disciples' feet and even his betrayer's feet. What motivates Jesus then to go this distance? What motivates this type of humility? Well, we're considering the posture of his humility. We've looked at the distance that he went. Now I want you to consider the desire that motivates him, and it's there in verse 1. In verse 1, it says that he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. It was love that led Jesus to the floors of that upper room home. It was love that led Jesus to the posture of humility. True humility is always motivated by love. Love and humility cannot be separated. And think about that for a second. What's the the opposite of love? Would be like sin. Sin is antithetical to love. Well, what's what's antithetical to humility? It's pride. It's when we're focused on ourselves that's when we sin, right? That causes distance from other people. But love in true maturation, love, mature love, is humble love. Mature love is humble love. In a world confused with love, in a world that defines love by feelings and romance, Jesus demonstrates love powerfully to the disciples the night before his death. Love is not a feeling according to Jesus. Love is an action. Love cannot simply be reduced to romance because there's nothing romantic about washing the disciples' feet. No, love is a service. You cannot separate love from humility. So pause for a moment, enter into the story. I have a question for you. Are you expressing true love in your relationships by expressing humility? We say that we love one another, but is there humility in the way that we serve one another? Do you desire to be a loving person? I think I know I do. The way that we can be loving or the test to know that we're loving is, am I growing in humility? Am I expressing humility? Am I serving other people? Here's a couple little phrases for you to consider this posture of humility. The posture of Jesus is one of humility motivated by love. That in itself, just pause and consider that. The posture of Jesus is not one that's this... Whatever image you have of Jesus in your head, this mad, this angry, this ready, he's just quick to judge. No, the posture of Jesus is one of humility motivated by love. But here's kind of the test barometer for us. The posture of humility does not seek its own interests, but the interests of others. Posture of humility doesn't seek its own interests, but the interests of others. Jesus did that check. The posture of humility is not one of self-protection, But self giving. What's Jesus doing? He's about to go to the cross. The moment where he needed, if if he needed to be in a mode of self protection, this would be it. But what's he doing? He's serving, he's giving. The posture of humility is not one of comfort, but one of compassion. The posture of humility is not afraid of the messes of other people's lives. The posture of humility, the posture of Jesus, is one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the posture of humility. This is our Jesus. As we continue to consider our servant king, the second thing I want us to consider is the promises of humility. We see this from verses 7 to 17. We're going to look at two of these promises. Let's read together verses 7 through 11, the promise of communion. Jesus answered and said to Peter, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to them, to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. According to Jesus, this first promise, what we see is this, is that cleansing is necessary for communion. Cleansing is necessary for communion, that in order to be apart or to be with him, cleansing needed to take place. And, and the author, John, shifts his focus onto Peter. Peter here was resistant to Jesus's posture of humility. Peter was the one who understood the power and majesty of Jesus. Remember, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he rightly answers, you're the son of God. Peter understood the majesty of who Jesus is. What he couldn't comprehend, what he didn't find appropriate was that Jesus was the one to wash his feet. But once again, The promise is clear. Cleansing is necessary for communion with God. And here again, I want to invite you into the story because Peter's response is similar to our response. Peter here focuses on what he could offer God rather than what God was doing for him. Peter's following Jesus. He wants to prove himself to Jesus. He wants to offer himself to Jesus. And he was resistant to Jesus doing anything for him. In other words, Peter wanted to earn his right standing. Peter wanted to earn his communion with Jesus. Are you following me? Peter's service to God was his primary focus. He was resistant that Jesus or God in human flesh would be doing anything to serve Peter. And this is important to consider because this is why Christianity is, in fact, so incredibly offensive to so many. Christianity says that your service doesn't merit communion with God. You can go on missions trips. You can serve here at church. You can volunteer at a local food bank. But it does not merit, none of these things merit our closeness or our communion with God. Likewise, why Christianity is so offensive is that our obedience doesn't merit communion with God. We can live this morally correct life. We can try to live as righteously as possible, upholding our life. We're challenging ourselves or mastering ourselves. But that in itself, living a morally upright, does not merit closeness or communion with God. So we get frustrated even when there's that self-righteousness that peaks up and we see the one person that was a sinner one week and the next week they come into church and maybe they don't dress the perfect part yet or talk a certain way yet. And we're like, what in the world's going on there? How can they be up here raising hands? I knew what they were doing last week. Why? Why do we have that attitude sometimes that creeps up into our hearts? Why? Because... We want obedience to merit communion with God, but obedience doesn't merit communion with God. Likewise, your sacrifice, our sacrifice, doesn't merit communion with God. You can drop as much money as you want in the offering box or whatever it is. You can drop as much money in the offering box. You can give all your time and sacrifice your time and your energy to the local church or to serving Jesus, but that does not merit our closeness or communion with God. And this offended Peter. Peter was offended that he needed to be cleansed. He wanted to be the one to prove himself and do the cleansing. And he was bummed at himself that he missed the opportunity. But see, the Christian claim is that in order to merit communion with God, we must be cleansed by Jesus. That's how we receive communion with God. That's how we receive closeness in fellowship. And this is why we don't like it. To be cleansed by Christ means that there's something wrong with me. To be cleansed means that there needs to be, there's, there's something that's dirty that needs to be cleansed. We don't enjoy that. We don't enjoy everyone seeing our mess in our lives and whatever it may be, but that is the exact requirement to receive the cleansing because if we're in no need of cleansing, then we're in no need of Jesus. But it's cleansing that merits right communion with God. It means that there's nothing that we can proudly offer, offer Jesus to merit His grace. That's why it's grace. The only thing that we have to offer is filthy rags of righteousness, our own efforts. For it's in the mess of our sin that Jesus is magnified the most, for he alone is able to cleanse us. Even pause there if if I've lost your attention for a second. Because I've been in pastoral ministry now for a few years. And I've noticed there's this odd thing that even happens within the church where we want to mask any mess in our lives. So we come to church and someone's like, how's it going? You're like, oh, I'm fine. Praise God. God's good. Amen and we just like put on this like this christian talk or this christian ease but the exact thing that we're masking which is maybe just whether it's sin or whether it's just the brokenness and the pain and the mess that this thing called life causes is all of that that is the prerequisite to be cleansed by jesus we don't need to do anything we just have to unmask ourselves and allow him to do all of the cleansing. The one thing that is required of us to present ourselves before Jesus is the one thing we try to hide the mess of our lives. We try to cleanse ourselves when Jesus is the only one who's able to do it. I'm sure you know what the Bible says in the book of Romans when it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In order to get to the grace part, we have to acknowledge the sin part. But it's when we acknowledge the sin part, that's where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that his grace is greater, his grace is more abundant, his grace is like a never-ending, infinite pool or ocean of grace. It's incredible. And it's the grace of God that's able to cleanse us of the messes of our lives. In order to be cleansed by the grace of God, you must acknowledge, we must acknowledge that mess, that error, that wrongdoing, the sin. Again, Jesus promised here in our verse, he says, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Peter, now grasping this idea, understanding that he must be cleansed by Jesus, almost humorously asked Jesus to bathe his whole body. In other words, fine, he got it. In order to have communion with you, Jesus, then bathe me from head to toe. Cleanse my whole body. This reminds me of my son. My son, he's amazing. Three years old, especially weekends like this when it's raining, we get cooped up in our little apartment house thing. We, we, we let him wild. We live on kind of like this back house in Vista. And so there's some property and it's all dirt. And so rain and dirt equals mud, which equals epicness for a three year old. And so sometimes we're cooped up for too long. We just unlock the door and let him free. And he loves it. But this is the thing. There is sometimes where he likes to go play in the mud for like two minutes and then he's ready to come inside. Now, those of you that are like parents, I'm sure you can sympathize with me. You've been cooped up the whole time. You're allowing him to get muddy. It's like, dude, you better play in it in about an hour because I'm not just opening up the door for you playing two minutes and then we got to clean up all the mud mess. It's like we got to make sure that we get the most of this experience, right? So it works if he goes out there and plays for an hour. But sometimes he literally just wants to get the dirt on him so that he can take a bath. And so he goes and he gets dirty so he can come back and take a bath. And it's a silly story, but the illustration is that sometimes when we hear this message of grace, then temptation is we need to go get dirty and sin. We need to go get dirty and do whatever we need to do so that then we can come and receive more grace. That's a temptation that comes up. That's why Paul then says in the book of Romans, does grace abound, so that sin abounds? And he says, certainly not. We don't have to go and get dirty to experience more cleansing. Why? Well, it's the point that Jesus is about to show him. Jesus demonstrates that he didn't need to cleanse his whole body again. It was just his feet that need to be cleansed because this is the thing. We don't need to go and get dirty because we already do just walking through life. We, we stub our toe, we step in mud, we get bruised. Life has a way of just doing that to us. And so we don't need to try and go get dirty. Life just has a way of doing it to us. And then the own sin that lives within our heart has its way of creeping back onto the throne of our heart. So we don't need to be bathed again. We simply need our need our feet to be cleansed. This here in itself is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Remember, this whole act is is like a living parable. It's a living truth where Jesus is demonstrating the truths of who he is. And and here there's this great example of what the Bible refers to as our salvation. Did you know that our salvation is in three stages, it could be said? Do you know that? How many of you knew that? three stages. You've got justification. I'm sure you're well taught. Pastor Trevor shared with you. There's sanctification. There's glorification. What are these words? Justification is is why Peter didn't need to be washed from head to toe again. He says, you're already clean. When we come to Jesus, we're justified, declared righteous, just as if I've never sinned. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, by absorbing our sin and the penalty for our sin, he's washed us in his blood. He has cleansed us. We are forgiven of our sin. We've been given the person, the Holy Spirit. That's justification. But that's only the beginning part. Then we go through all of life, justifications in a moment, but sanctification is in a lifetime. And that's what this act, this is what this, serve, this act of service demonstrates. The act of sanctification where we go through life and, and we need to be cleansed over and over again. The word sanctified simply means to be set apart. We're being set apart. We're being made holy. We're we're looking more like Jesus over time. Why? Because as we walk through life, we get messy and we need to be cleansed. And one day, we'll step into eternity with Jesus where that won't be a problem anymore. And then we'll be glorified. This is our salvation. This is what Jesus is even demonstrating in this living truth here. But notice this. It's the cleansing that is needed for communion. And in order to be cleansed, there has to be an express in us, the humility that there's something to be cleansed. Why we need cleansing. This is what Jesus is doing. The blessing comes as we decrease and he increases. The blessing comes as, as we recognize the own mess in our lives, it's sin that we're cleansed. Number two here in the promises of humility. We see the promise of blessing. Let's read verses 12 through 17. We're almost finished. Verse 12 says, so when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he is sent him. If you know these things, blessed Are you if you do them? Here, Jesus exhorts the disciples to adopt his position on power. The servant is not greater than the master, and the master here is found clothed in humility. Following the ways of Jesus then means to be clothed in humility as well. And as we follow the way of Jesus, blessing follows. But rather than being clothed in humility, far too often we're clothed in pride. Far too often, instead of seeking the interests of others, we're seeking the interests of ourselves. Far too often, rather than self-giving, we're self-protecting. Far too often, we misuse and even abuse the little teensy bit of power that we're given. Oftentimes, rather than being clothed in humility, we're clothed in our own achievements, our own desires, our own preferences, and our own reputation. We prefer those outfits rather than the outfit of humility that Jesus was wearing. But those are not the ways of Jesus. The blessing comes as we decrease and he increases. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said that humility... It's not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. So the answer to this whole pride problem isn't to self-deprecate and beat ourselves up all the time because that's just a different form of pride. We're still thinking about ourselves. No, true humility is just thinking of ourselves less. Why? Because we're so full of the love of God and the love of other, other people. We're thinking of him and we're thinking of them or thinking of others. Humility doesn't walk around talking about how awful we are. Humility walks around focusing on God and others. It's self forgetfulness for the love of others, as Tim Keller put it in his short book on self forgetfulness. When we live in this manner, it's there that we experience his blessing. Remember, 1 Peter chapter 5 says this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. That's the promise, a blessing that comes with following humility is as we choose to follow the way of Jesus, to clothe ourselves in humility, as we decrease and he increases in our lives, God gives more grace. God gives grace in the humble, but opposes the proud. He exalts the lowly. There's a blessing in following the way of Jesus. But then he does this. Jesus focuses here at the beginning, or really John as he's writing this, focuses in on Judas in verses 1 and 2, and then Judas comes up later. See, we come to the servant king, where we've considered the posture of humility, the promises of humility, but let's wrap it up by looking at the power of humility. The power of humility is this, is that Judas had his feet washed by Jesus. That Judas, who he knew was going to betray him, Judas was in the room. In verse two, let's go back to the beginning. It says this, that Jesus loved to them to the end and supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him. It inserts that little phrase to remind us that Judas is in the room, that Judas was going to betray him. It gives us that little tagline before going into the account and continuing with the washing of the feet. Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus only hours later, was one of the disciples that Jesus went to the distance from the glories of heaven to that dusty upper room floor. Jesus washed Judas' feet. He was fully aware of what Judas was able to do or what Judas was going to do. The act of washing not only the disciples' feet, but his betrayer's feet is what demonstrates the power of humility. Why? Because humility is power under control. Humility is power under control. Jesus could have ended Judas right there, but what does he do? He's serving and washing Judas' feet. A humble person is someone whose identity is rooted in Jesus, that then they're able to stand confidently before their betrayer. This act of love and humility toward enemies is what the early church was known for. And for the first three centuries of the church, the most often quoted verse of that time was the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus didn't just simply say that phrase in a sermon. No, he demonstrates it here at the end of his life by washing his disciples' feet. And as we close this morning, I want to invite you into the story one more time. Maybe you identify with Peter. You recognize your need for cleansing, but Jesus offers you cleansing today. Maybe you identify with Peter of being resistant because it's, you don't want to show the mess of your lives, but you're realizing, okay, that's necessary for communion. Maybe you see your need to identify with Jesus, to grow in, in humility in the way of Jesus and to show humility and clothe yourself in humility to other people. But what I want to invite you to see at the end of this is not to identify yourself with Peter or Jesus, but with Judas. Why Judas? Well, the reality is, as the Bible says this in Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we, whether we realize it or not, we were betrayers of Jesus. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. And even as we begin to follow Jesus, we can still at times betray him. The spirit of God is nudging us to respond to some sort of conviction or the word of God is penetrating our hearts and we resist and we resist and we resist. We can actually be a lot more like Judas when we, than we want to admit. And in fact, before Jesus rescued us, we were the Judas. We'd betrayed him. But the beauty of the humility of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's grace is that he saves a wretch like me and he saves a wretch like you. That Jesus by his grace will wash his betrayer's feet. That Jesus would then go from this scene He would go into the garden and be tormented. He would then have Judas come to betray him. And his last friends to Judas was, friend, do what you came to do. That in the moments where in my life, when I wasn't following Jesus and I was stabbing Jesus in the back, so to speak, I was betraying Jesus. I was doing my own thing, even though I knew I shouldn't be. Jesus was still calling me friend, pursuing me laying down his life for you and me that we may experience true life. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is when the humility of Jesus, when we recognize the Judas in our own hearts, when we recognize that, then the humility of Jesus, man, changes everything. By his grace, as we receive his grace, it changes us from the inside out. Like Judas, we were the enemies of God, yet Jesus displays true humility and love on the cross. He took our sin, he buried our sin, he rose victoriously over our sin, he's alive today, and he's able to change us from the inside out by the work of his Holy Spirit. As we close If you don't get anything from this morning, simply get this. The love of Jesus is far greater than we can even comprehend. It's far deeper. It's far wider. He's far greater and grander, yet he's totally and completely humble. And even in every moment when we or our loved ones walk away, he is pursuing them in his loving kindness. He's that good. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. And we only love you because you first loved us. Lord, we marvel at your grace. We marvel at what you've done at the cross. We marvel that you are the one who literally holds every single part of this storm that's coming. You're greater than all of it. Yet you're the one with all of that greatness and the grandness and that power You don't demonstrate yourself as this lofty God. You demonstrate yourself as a servant king who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we, we leave here in awe at who you are, at what you've done for us. And Jesus, we ask, Lord, that your grace would penetrate us, penetrate our hearts, change us from the inside out, and make us more like you. We love you. In Jesus' name, your people said, amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.